everybody. This is Stephanie Hansen, and you are listening to The Makers in Minnesota, where we talk to cool people doing cool things. And I'm here talking to a very cool person today. We're getting some coffee delivered, too, which will be so delicious. Um, talking with Steve Horton, and he is the founder of Baker's Field Flour and Bread. I'm actually in the food building, which your space is right here that you are milling and grinding and baking and doing all the things right here, aren't you? Yes. Uh, we opened in Minneapolis here, Northeast Minneapolis, mm-hmm. about three years ago, a little over three years ago, 2016, in the summer, and started the idea of sourcing local, uh, by local, I meant upper mid, I mean upper Midwest grains. Yep. And milling those and figuring out what they taste like and, and how they perform in bread specifically. So how do you get commun- how do you get in contact with your farmers? Do they contact you? Do you ask them to grow specific things for you? It's an evolution. Uh, it's still ongoing as far as the the uh, way we continue to have the relationships with the farmers we're working with currently. When we opened, it was it was it was cold calling, literally cold calling to find people that had grain because it was the summer prior to harvest. So we were trying to find what was available. Uh, since then, we've developed relationships with farmers who want to work with us specifically in terms of not just what we're doing, but ha- they have an interest in finding uh, a source for their grain that's somewhat local and also a way to actually see the final result. Um, and yes, we are we are very much involved in terms of figuring out what is going to work for us and is the farmer able to grow that for us moving forward. Are all of the grains in your bread's heritage grains? No, they are not. So there's a, there's some confusion, I think, out there yeah. in general about heritage, heirloom. So I'll break it down. And, and these are terms that are fairly generic, and they're used uh, somewhat coincidentally uh, also at the University of Minnesota. I asked this, I was at a, a forum a couple of months back, and we one of the questions I asked was, you know, what are the criteria that you use in terms of defining how you look at grains? They actually use the same same terms. Uh, and so there's the ancient, which is an interesting word to use, but it's, it's really the progenitors, the, the grains that uh, were the, the origin for what we consider modern wheat today. So mm-hmm. you look at spelt, einkorn, and emmer, and some people put Coruscant in there, Kamut in there as well. But then, then you look at what happened over a grain over time, and what we would consider uh, heritage or heirloom grains were many of the wheats that it, it kind of, it, over time basically were developed uh, either organically or, or by uh, crossbreeding. Prior to 1940, 45, really with uh, the University of Minnesota, the Borlaug, uh, anything prior to that is kind of considered heirloom or heritage. But then we became into the modern era of wheat growing, and that's when um, crossbreeding, hybridizing wheat really began to take off in terms of trying to look at yields, look at uh, lodging or and uh, pest control and uh, drought and all of these issues. How do we, how do we grow grain in a more um, changing climate, really? You know, it, but the, the big question at the time was how do we feed more people? And so with that, that's where modern grain became kind of more in, to the forefront of everything. And it's still kind of funny because that is still like when you talk about uh, modification of seeds and mm-hmm. you talk about grain production there is this idea that we still need to feed the world right because right. we still have a lot of people that aren't getting fed correct at the same time 
you can get into Frankengrains and some of the biodynamic uh, challenges that people have where they're modifying seeds and modifying the process to the point where maybe they're breeding out the nutrition or maybe they're creating more um, allergic allergens in these products. So it's it's very fascinating if you look at modern farming and modern production. Are we trying to feed the world? Are we trying to um, grow as much as we can in as small a space as we can that is disease resistant as we can? Or are we going to go back to some of the tenets of maybe we need to look at alternative sources because we can only grow so much of this stuff so safely? Um, as someone that is really concerned with the grain because obviously that impacts your final product how do you see that moving into the future do you think we'll be going more in reverse almost back to some of that more heritage or that there will be a place for both yeah the the short and the long answer is i think there's a place for both uh there's been a resurgence, I would say, of heirloom or heritage heritage interest in terms of the consumer, which then encourages the farmer and, and middle producers such as myself to, to certainly take a look at that. The problem that exists with heritage or heirloom grain that from a commercial standpoint is that the yields are not very good. Right. And so when you have low yields, if the farmer can't make that up in price, they, they can't long term, like realistically, they can't grow it. So unless the government gets involved or the market corrects itself to, to, to look at that, you know, you start to look at what, what is viable. Um, I do think that based on where the, a lot of the research is going with grain, be it perennials like Kernza, for example. Sure. Um, or just looking at what is working from a modern uh, standpoint with grain, that we're going to have a balance there. But uh, I I do think that long-term, in order to to have maximize the yield of what we're looking at, you're you're still going to have modern agriculture in terms of wheat production, at least, is be at the forefront of that. A lot of it, though, comes back to, for me, and this is regardless of whether it's heritage or modern, is soil health. And so soil regeneration and many of the farmers that we're working with are not only organic, but they're they're working in terms of a crop rotation system. And they're thinking about what is the microbial health of the soil. And that's where you start to look at long term, regardless of what kind of grain is being grown. How do we make sure that we're maintaining or we're good shepherds of the of this and not continuing to strip all the nutrients out? Right. right. um, When you think about someone in your position who else is buying these heritage grains besides people like you like what else are they using them for well there's been a little bit of that with i'd say brewing in terms of interest you know there's there's definitely depending on the brewer obviously uh there there's an interest in terms of what kind of flavor and, and and also to some degree marketing i think um for some some individuals uh so i'd say that's one area of interest and uh, distilling too i suppose yes and mm-hmm. absolutely in distilling you know general mills has gotten very interested the last couple of years in kernza specifically which is a, originally produced out of the land institute and has a partnership with the university of minnesota um, in working to move that forward and, and that's a perennial where most wheat is an annual um do you use some of the kernza in we breads? do uh we primarily so kernza is a long story we can spend a podcast on that. Yeah. Uh, but long story short, the Kernza that we currently have is from the Land Institute, and we're holding on to it for uh, specific 
end users that they have designated. And so when they need it, we either ship them whole grain or, or flour. Uh, in the past, when we have our own kerns of supply, primarily we're supplying the Birchwood Cafe here in Minneapolis mm-hmm. with it. Um, we've done some pr- bread for them at the State Fair the last Absolutely. two years. Absolutely. Um, the BLTs. The BLTs, exactly. But primarily we haven't done much or, or, with it in terms of our own production because we don't have a consistent source. Wasn't there like a huge crop failure this year? There was, there was. But and in addition to that, even beyond that problem, which of course is a significant issue sure. uh, for farmers all the time, every year, but uh, the other problem is there aren't enough people growing it to uh, be able to supply everyone who wants it. And so we take what we can get with the idea that our primary uh a concern is to make sure that the Birchwood has what they need. And then from there, if we've had a couple of other of our accounts that have gotten it as well for, for specifically flour for pasta. Sure. But we haven't made any breads with it because of the fact that we don't have a consistent supply. Right. I happen to know the woman at General Mills that her job was to figure out what to do with the ruined kerns of crop. Sure. So, you know, they were looking at, do you, can we feed it to the animals? How right. do we get it to them? just something that I, when I was talking to her, I was like, oh yeah, who even thinks about that? Like you have right. a huge crop failure right. and then you have to figure out what to do with it so you can start over. And right. so you tell me about the process from beginning to end. Like you, the end result is you make delicious breads and cookies. What happens? Where do you start with that? Where do we start? Mm-hmm. Sure. So where, where we really start is with the grain. We, we have every grain, we treat it almost as if it's single origin. So like chocolate or wine mm-hmm. would be. And we look at the grain and we mill it. We figure out what does it taste like? How would this perform in what capacity? So we, we have that as a, as a one piece of data point in a sense. And you're kind of a scientist, aren't you? I mean, in don't sense, you have to figure yeah. out and like... An art. You know, we, we balance the science with the art, I would say, or craft maybe is a better word. Uh, and that, that, is, that is true. We have to look at, for example, we have a, a grain that we use uh, the last, we've used the last two years, which is bowls. It's a hard red spring wheat that was actually came out of the University of Minnesota. It was a release of theirs. Uh, and it produces a flour that's very elastic or strong, tends to have great fermentation and mixing tolerance. So it holds up really well through a whole process. Um, and so what is the best use for that? Well, generally, we found pan breads, bagels, buns, things like this, where we're looking for volume. We're looking for uh, really long proofing times. So the, we look at the grain. We look at what the, is the best suited purpose for it. And ultimately, how does it taste? And if it doesn't taste quite like how we want, then maybe what we do in some instances is we'll cut it with a different flour mm-hmm. that we think has great flavor but maybe doesn't work as well in the final function you know, from just a practicality standpoint, is, is the bowls, for example. So that's kind of how we, we view it. We still treat the flowers as single origin, but we, when we do combine them, we add it on that back end, which is at, at the mixing stage. What percentage of the business is flour that you're selling and right. producing versus baked goods? Uh, flour is only about 15%. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. it seems like it would just be smaller because... I wonder, like, do people connect with you? Like, how do you find, do you have to, like, call, cold call to find clients to buy your flour? Or at this point, are people calling you? Mainly they're calling us. We originally, when we opened, we we were calling, of course. Calling, calling, calling. Uh, But now our biggest uh, accounts for flour are the kitchens in town that have baking programs. 
So, for example, Birchwood Cafe, sure. Spoon and Stable, Belcor, Alma, Bachelor Farmer, all of these pro- all of these restaurants have their own baking programs for bread, and so they're using our flour, which has been great. Um, we do. Supply- it is great that there's a big enough ecosystem to yeah, make that absolutely. happen for you. Absolutely, and that it, that has been our our I think our most consistent and enthusiastic um, customer base from that standpoint. The other the other kind of outlet is four pound retail bags. So we, we sell at the co-ops predominantly is our, is our uh, kind of literally our bread and butter. Yep. But they also, in addition to the bread that they sell for us, they are buying our four-pound retail f- flour. And that is a great, you know, this time of year especially. We're yeah, because there's a so lot much of purchasing. baking. There's mm-hmm. so much baking going on, right? right. So you started out, um, give me, like, how did you start out in the whole baking scene? I know you were really integral to Rustica and getting yeah. started there. Mm-hmm. What got you there and then why did you leave there because for a lot of people that was like the ah, of baking for a while sure so i i started uh i started a breadsmith in town there are three of them yeah uh dave wright is the gentleman that owns the breadsmiths here locally i started in 96 1996 working for him as a retail manager he needed a manager at the time i came in i got very interested in the process and what they do they have a very specific uh, methodology and approach to what they do, philosophy. Learned that and then wanted to learn more. So I started to take classes, seminars at the National Baking Institute, which was downtown. Mm-hmm. It was an uh, uh, educational outreach from the Bread Bakers Guild of America. Um, and we uh, they, they offered seminars in basically rustic-style breads and pastries. Did you have it right away? Like, were you just good at it? No, 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 no. And uh, it takes time. It takes time. Shaping, especially. Mm-hmm. Shaping takes, I mean, just to get to a comfortability and even, I would say, at, be adequate at it, it takes months um, because it's about feel, you know. Um, and texture and knowing when yeah, it's ready exactly. to go. Yeah, and, exactly. And understanding that, you know, every dough is different and the fermentation and that. Uh, no, and it's always ongoing. We're learning every day. Um, any any good baker would tell you that they there's constantly things that you learn. Uh, so no, I it took some time and but it was there was an interest there and and then I worked various jobs for several years with the idea that I wanted to open something myself and and have my own perspective, and so I worked quite hard to get Rustica open in 2004, and we stayed in that location uh, at 46 and uh, Bryant for about five years. And then we moved to the uh, Calhoun Village space, um, where it is now. Um, and then in 2015, I just had, uh, it was 2014, actually. I'd just been, I was tired. I'd been working um, six or mostly seven days a week for quite a while. Can you tell me about that? Because yeah. a friend of mine, Michelle Geyer, just kind of. Yeah, sure. Th- from the salty tart threw in the towel and was just like, I need to be done with this for a while. Yeah. What time do you wake up? What time do right. you have to be at the bakery? Right. How does that take a toll physically on you? It, it does take a toll. It, you know, every, every situation is different, of course. But bread baking specifically, you know, there, there are different approaches to it, of course. Uh, but we started at Rustico. Somebody was usually there at 11 o'clock, 1130 at night. Um, and I, my day would end at 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Um, and so that every day, that toll, and especially when you're only a year or two old as far as a business, you're really putting everything you have into it. Uh, and so physically, you know, I had shingles at one point, oh. kidney stones. It was just a just a myriad of problems physically. But then it just eventually took a, a, a toll on my family life and, and me personally. But I just needed a break. That was really what it came to. I was tired. <laughs> How 
long were you feeling crappy and mm. thinking about it before you actually did it? Because I think so many people might be in jobs that they don't like and they're like mulling it over, but it takes someone really like either a crisis a lot of times right. or you get to a point where you just cannot physically keep going. Right. Do you remember the moment where you were just like, oh my gosh, I have to quit this thing I love maybe? I do actually. Uh, it, um, it was two, it's still 2014 and the, the two years, 2012 to 14 were very good years in terms of the business. We had a lot of growth and mm-hmm. the staff I had at that point was, it was phenomenal. And, and the woman that was our uh, head baker at the time on the bread side was a woman named Suzanne. And she had made a decision to move forward in her life in a different direction and become an electrician. And that was great for her. And that was the right choice. Sure. And, but I was really, I was, I was took a blow. Um, and I remember thinking like, I don't think I have it in me to train somebody else to be where I need her or where she was yep. um, for me to still have a life. And all I saw was my life going back to where it had been. Um, and I was, when she was there, I was able to have days off and I felt confident that everything was fine. Yep. And, and now I'm thinking there's no, I have to go back and I can't, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And so that was my point. I'm like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's such a weird space, too, because if you've worked with someone and you've uh, groomed them and they've taken the instruction that you've given them and they make it their own and Mm. they're excited and they're progressing in their career, it makes sense that they have to leave you. Right. And you as a mentor, you want good things for them because you end up caring about the people that work for you. But then there is that moment sometimes when the key people move on. And while you're thrilled for them, you are dying inside because you know, like either I have to find someone that will replace you or I have to invest all this time in training. So I really can empathize with what that felt like. Yeah, it was, it was a tough, it was a tough decision, but it was also one that I realized I'd brought on myself because up until that point that Suzanne had been there in, in a more of a leadership role, I had always done everything. Like I did all the ordering, I did the inventory, I did the the scheduling, you know, um, my wife uh, at the time, Barbara was very involved, but she, um, she was more involved with the front. And so she had a very large role as well, but I had done so many things and had been kind of the head of so many different departments that I hadn't created enough stability underneath of me. And it was my own fault that I had basically put all this weight on myself. That is really a um, insightful thing to look back on, but also so common too, as an entrepreneur, Of course, you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with and the systems you've built. And there's a lot of control that goes into that. And it's really challenging to give up control, to know you're going to have to make some mistakes that you wouldn't have to make on your own because you right. could get through it. Right. Yeah, it's. Um, I think any truly good leader, that is where the rubber kind of meets the road, isn't it? Right, it is. And looking back, I mean, when we opened in 2004, the other really key person there was uh, a woman named Tammy who is phenomenal baker and mm-hmm. talented, and she was there for quite some time. Um, and, you know, between her and myself, we were able to do so much and have so much control. But as we grew and grew and grew, when I left Rustica, we were at $3 million a year in sales, which was great. But yeah, for we had a, a bakery, that's staff. a lot. Yeah, and, and so to have that staff and to manage that staff, but still be involved in production every day, there needed to be some balance that was not there. And, and, and 
more leadership that I, that I was lacking at the time. So how much time did you take off before you incubated this? Uh, a couple of months. That's uh, it? That's it. Well, I, I realized rather quickly that I, I knew, and I knew when I sold the bakery that I couldn't just, I'm not going to be alone on easy street or yep. anything. So I needed to figure out what my next step was. And as I, as I kind of recouped, I, I realized that one of the frustrations as a baker, at least in the Twin Cities, in many urban areas, is your limited access to your primary ingredient. Um, and so how did I, I was kept thinking, how do I create a differentiated product? Well, I need to have a differentiated ingredient. And the only real way for me to do that, because it's so expensive to ship flour, mm-hmm. um, was to, uh, to mill it ourselves. And so how do I do that? I knew nothing about milling. And, um, you know, we've, we've learned so much over the last four years, but even the year prior to opening and then three years since. So did you fund it yourself or who's the crazy pants that gave you the money to yeah. go figure out? Sure, Steve. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> go figure out how to mill that grain. And well, the building we're sitting in, which is owned by Kieran Foyer is, is, uh, is he has a hand in all of the businesses here and as a very large part of what, of what we uh, uh, did and do, you know, it was Kieran uh, listening to my idea, um, you know, asking me some really good hard questions, and then uh, doing due diligence. That and then saying, you know, let's do this, let's fill this space because it was the empty space mm-hmm. that he had in the in the building, um, and so it was it was his commitment that really made it happen. How did you treat it differently then with the lessons you had learned? So you come into this space and you're going to get closer to the grain and be more involved in the grain end, the milling end. But then at the end of the day, it has to be produced into something that you can also sell. Right. So did you mentor more people? Did you create more structure, more leadership rungs? What did you do different? So we, we set it up very uniquely. I feel, uh, for right out of the gate, um, I made it very clear with the people that we were hiring and that I made this clear with Kieran is that I didn't want anyone to work a shift that I wasn't willing to do myself. And I wasn't willing to work at 11 o'clock at night anymore. So we're, we decided at, we started at five. We're going to start at 5 a.m. We now have pushed that to 4.30 and mm-hmm. there's somebody here at three, but, but we're kind of holding the line there. But, uh, but basically what I said was we would need to create a more livable structure, uh, a livable, um, career for, for people that are interested in this. So that was the starting point. And then we started to look at what do we need in terms of, uh, expertise and, and skill set. And so we hired, uh, several people, many of them had, had good experience in terms of baking and started to, to train with them and, uh, not train them, but train with them in terms of milling. And we spent a lot of time that summer just learning how to work the mill and, and how to uh, figure out our entire process. Because everything we do is naturally leavened or sourdough, what people think of as sourdough. So you using fresh flour is one thing, but then using it in a process that's I'm just, a little I'm, more time I'm sitting here thinking about that. Everything is based in sourdough. Right, everything. Because I don't think when I eat a lot of your products... That they taste like sourdough. Right, like. and that's by design. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's why I use the term naturally leaven. Because mm-hmm. I say sourdough, I say this all the time. Most people have a very distinct yeah. thing in their head, right? They're like, oh, this, okay. But if I say naturally leaven, they're like, I don't know what that means. And that's, that's by design because I'm asking you to think, like, the possibilities are endless. I can make something that's very sour, very slight, 
dense, light, yeah. somewhere in the middle. So it, it, it gives you uh, flexibility in terms of that. Um, and it really enhances the flavor profile of what's available there at the base of the grain. Um, you also bake, I'm assuming. I do. I mainly work the bench, which is in this, we call it work the bench, it's shaping. Is mainly shaping. It's a way to control the room. You know, we the way we mix, and then the bench is kind of that middle stage in the oven, um, and also answer questions and 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 help as much as I can here and there. Um, but I mean, I am fifty, and it's starting to <laughs> it's starting to catch up with me a little bit. Um, you know, I, I I like the production aspect of it, but the baking is and the mixing mixing is by far the most difficult position uh, as far as uh, your body. But standing in one place for 10 hours or eight hours is not that big of a deal for me. But baking and, and mixing are a little bit more. It takes a little bit more out of me. So when you look at your aging self, because yeah. we're very similar in age, do you think like, oh, I'm going to have to modify these things or I'm going to have to make sure that I have a pool of talented young people right. that are interested in this and I can maybe shift to a more mentor role? Yeah, I, I, that's something I've been thinking about um, more and more. I, I, coming back a little bit to the question you asked about how did we set up a, a system that we're, you know, in terms of delegation or uh, from a leadership standpoint, people with more supervision or less supervision but more uh, responsibility. Uh, you know, a person I worked with at Rustico is a gentleman named Wes, and he and then Hannah, who actually used to work at Lone Grazer Creamery, mm-hmm. which was here um, no longer. No longer so sad. Yeah. Um, and she, those two uh, bakers are, and millers are they're just very talented people in terms of process and communication and, um, and very, very dedicated to what they do. And they really are the ones that are running the bakery. I mean, I'm, I'm here and, and I have a presence and a perspective that is, is definitely imprinted on the space. But at the end of the day, if I disappeared, they would be fine because they're they're really the ones that are running this place. And so that was the idea. And more and more as as something comes up, a conflict or a, a problem, I let I I try to stay out of things as much as I can and just help where I can. So that's where I think it will go yeah. uh, more and more um, because at some point I know, you know, my back or whatever. I'm just, it's becoming more difficult. So When you look at the sales of like, do you have to go and like cold call Certix and say, Hey, Mary Richter, will you carry my breads or we did originally? Yes. Yeah. The, we, you know, we, we knew our original marketing and, and kind of sales approach was to be more restaurant heavy. So our loaves were huge, mm-hmm. really large bread, and that's where we thought that market would be. And um, I think it was a little naive on my part, frankly, uh, because restaurants are, as you know, they're they're under a lot of pressure, rent, labor, margins, you know, food costs, and bread. To be frank, is one of the last things that is is a consideration, especially if it's expensive. So that and the availability of frozen and par-baked product has given restaurants a little bit more flexibility in terms of bread. So there wasn't as much of an interest there, I think, uh, partially because of cost. Our our bread's not cheap. Right. Um, And so we had to pivot a little bit. How do we we move more bread? And we we were in the co-ops, but we were finding the one consistent feedback um, point that we were getting from customers was your bread's too big. It's just me or it's me and my husband or I, I can't eat this whole loaf. Mm-hmm. 
And so we decided to make uh, basically half-size loaves. So we do a larger format for restaurants, and we do a half-size loaf for retail, for uh, grocery. And that has been a huge difference for us. We are selling so much more bread now because now it's an accessible price point, but it's also, I can eat this. It's, it's meal-worthy. Right. So, like, when I leave here today, I already told my husband, okay, I'm going to the bakery, so um, we're going to have soup and salad for dinner, and I'll go pick up some bread. Right. But it, it, like, I think about my bread purchase like I think about if I was going to get meat or mm-hmm. something fresh to go with the meal. Right, right. And that's what we hope. You know, uh, with the opening of Kieran's Kitchen a few months ago, that's really the next um, kind of uh, evolution of the business in my mind is we need to have that direct contact with the customer, that retail contact. Because while our partners and grocery are great, it's we're still removed from that direct interaction. And so having that that ability to talk to the customer and say, you know, exactly, you know, treat this as a as a fresh product. Kieran's Kitchen too is the restaurant outpost in the food building. It had been something else and Kieran took it back over and he has invited the tenants, which is Alamar Cheese uh, Red Table Meats, and obviously you, to come together and Chef Ian Gray is using these products and created kind of an all-day kitchen menu that the... Do you make the brioche for the breakfast sandwich? We do, we do. Oh, I that was like the sandwich of my life that I ate last week, and I didn't even want to eat it. I was like, ooh, I'm going to have dinner at 5 o'clock. It was like 1 o'clock. I was like, if I eat at home, well, okay. So I thought I'll get something... And then I can always, like, take it home or whatever. I did not even leave one thing on my plate. It was so delicious. Um, it, it was the brioche. It was the cheese. It was the sausage that was made here on site. It was the way that there was um, that Ian Gray just put it together. And then there was the craggy fried potato that was delicious. So I'm excited that the food offering is a little bit better than it was. Mm -hmm. And also just that it feels more market-based. Like, I feel like I can come in here and actually buy stuff and eat. Right. And that's the whole idea. You know, uh, we're still fine-tuning it. You know, it's um, always a work in progress. But the idea is the consumer comes in and they have options they can to go or, or, as you say, buy, there's milk available, there's eggs available, there, there's Alamar cheese, there's red table salami, um, our breads, we, we're making some donuts and cookies, those type of things. So, you know, come in, get that for your home or to go to where you to work. But then if you're having a meal, stop in and, and yeah. eat there. You know? And box lunches, I would think, could be. Yeah, that's the kind of the next evolution. They're really working towards, right now they're working on the holidays and abundance boards, which is on the menu, but making basically uh, charcuterie trays for uh, holiday get-togethers or you know cater, uh, catered events, um, corporate is, events. Is like abundance that. board a term that you guys came up with, or is that... Well, that it must be someone upstairs, yeah. Which upstairs is our offices? Uh, that was not as far. No, I wasn't. Involved. Yeah, because yeah. it's a cool term, yeah, and yeah. I've heard them called like grazing. Yeah, grazing boards. Grazing, grazing boards. Yeah, which is a great term as well. But and and they're very rustic. Like yeah. I think they're perfect for this space because if you can imagine just a giant pretty board of wood, and then there's usually cheese and fruit and spreads and breads and meats, and it looks really. Uh, like Henry VIII kind of, how right. his table would look when right. you watch it on TV. It's always just stacked and overflowing and everything just looks so delicious. 
there is like all, all over Instagram, you're seeing boards like that. So right. I think that's really on trend and it makes really nice use of your space. And obviously all of you in the space together, right. kind of the sum of your parts making this really cool whole. Exactly. It's, it's a way to highlight the brands and tell the story on, on a platter. And, and I think for uh, people sitting at a restaurant, having it for two people, for example, or if you're having a party of 12, it works either way. Uh, it's just eye-popping. There's texture. There's flavor. And even like weddings, you exactly. know, or stand-up yeah. things. Yeah. Because it's a differentiation point. And I don't, I, I don't know what the trends are for brides, but I feel like it's a lot less stuffy mm-hmm. and that they are going more towards the gathering itself and right. ways to bring people in and they're not having necessarily these super fancy cakes, but more like donuts and cookies and just really more of a authentic experience right, 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 right. <laughs> to, to sound all Instagrammy. But, um, so what is next for you as you, are you going to just keep doing what you're doing and developing people? And are you going to break out and try to do more in the wholesale world are you going to focus your energies more on alternative grain? That's or all the above? All, yeah. I, I would say our focus is always back here. I mean, I always come back to, you know, one of the, the key things that we always are concentrating on is quality. And for me, quality is about consistency. It's not just being good at something one day. It's being good at it every day. So it's always part of what we're, we're working on here um, and, and taking that to the next level for retail. So we, we started with some donuts is a, is a way to help with the retail front. Now, you know, looking at after the end of this year, the beginning of, you know, in January, what can we do for desserts to help the, the market, help the restaurant? So that'll be our kind of our next, I think, evolution there. But yeah, we're always looking like right now uh, for this, this, this past harvest, we were able to um, take in some hollis oats from one of our farmers, and so we're incorporating that into a pancake mix that we're doing. It's called Farm Cakes. It's all whole grain with whole grain emmer and then uh, toasted oats that we mill. Um, and so we're, we're looking more and more, how can we use the different uh, grains that our farmers are growing, either as cover crops or they're investing 5, 10 acres in it and then selling it to us. So one of the farmers is growing flax, and we're taking all of our flax now comes from him. It's only three hours away. So more and more, how do we become even more uh, locally upper Midwest focused? When I say gluten-free to you, does it give you the hives? Not at all. No, not at all. I think um, it's a... Uh, it's again. We could have an entire podcast on. We could. Free. I I understand it. I um, I think it's misunderstood in many ways by the general public, uh, people that have an allergy or a sensitivity or have celiac disease. It's very real for them, uh, and and I respect that. What I think has happened due to marketing, due to uh, demonizing, demonizing one particular food grain, group. Yeah, is that it's it's hurt it's hurt a, a food group that can have a lot of nutrition. I mean, wheat is one of the most nutrient-dense foods. We tend to, in this country, strip it of all its nutrients and then make bread with it. Um, it doesn't have to happen that way. So, no, I don't, I don't think of that. It, that is actually, for next year, uh, on the back burner, my staff doesn't know about this yet, but uh, one of my goals is to produce a naturally leavened, gluten-free bread which can be done. It's a little more tricky, but it can be done. It'd probably be oat or buckwheat based. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think if we had something like that in our lineup, um, it, it speaks to the consumer that, that has that 
either allergy sensitivity or or disease um, but uh, also you know it, it it can be another interesting kind of um, that, for us. that might be the way to hook the restaurant tour too, because there's a lot of not delicious gluten-free products. Right, right. So would you, if you were a chef and you were going to present an egg sandwich, let's say, and you could present it in a way that they, it was on a gluten-free piece of bread that tasted as delicious as the rest of what you were presenting, right. that might make it worth the money. You know right, what I mean? Right. Because Without it being gluten-free, then there's just certain people that you're never going to reach that aren't going to order it. Right. Um, so exactly. that's interesting how that could kind of come full circle for you. Exactly. Exactly. And it, we don't want the menu to be limited by uh, what we can't do. Yeah. And so that, you know, is, is it within our, our experience and skill set to do it? Yes. We Are you doing pastas too? We aren't, but the kitchen is. They use our flour and they're making pastas with it. Yeah. Um, do you make pasta personally? I do at home, but it's uh, <laughs> it's rather rudimentary compared to what they're doing over here. Yeah, I bet. Well, and Ian is really, he, Chef Ian Gray is known for, I think, known for just making fabulous pastas. Yeah, yeah. The food the food here has been uh, very, very good, I would say. And, and the pasta especially is it, what I tend to order when I, when I come over and eat. Okay, here's the tricky questions. You ready for them? Yeah. Okay. Not anybody in this building. Are there other makers that you admire? Oh, absolutely. Um, there, uh, you said no one in the building. No one in the building. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say Skinny Jake is uh, our honey purveyor. and um, Well, the, you can say him because yeah, he's kind of new. Yeah, he's kind of new. So he's just his commitment to what he does and the number of hives. And the. And is it called Skinny Jake's Honey? Yeah, Skinny, okay. skinny Jake's Fat Honey. Okay. So, but that type of commitment to, I mean, what we do is I consider a living organism, our cultures, but what he does is really living and, and the, uh, the year round care and responsibility that he takes for bees is, is quite astounding. He's an interesting, interesting person. So that's somebody that I, I have a, a lot of respect for, I would say. And, you know, I, I think there are people within my industry, uh, say craft baking that I have a lot of respect for, um, Primarily, it's people that are maybe not as well known. Um, there's a gentleman in Australia um, who's an American who's who's uh, living there now, um, Ian uh, Lowe, and he has a bakery called A Piece, and maybe the most scientifically grounded baker that I've ever come across. And just the amount of information that he's willing to share with people is astounding. Um, and it's and so that's somebody that is just he's he's a light in terms of looking at where we are as a, as, a, as a craft and how we move forward, given that, you know, with climate change, it's a very real effect on grain mm-hmm. and then, of course, on flour and then, of course, on, on baked goods. So how do, you, how do you move forward looking at that? When you're not working, what do you do for fun? <laughs> That's a great question. I, uh, I don't do a lot. I tend to sleep as much as I can. Yeah. Uh, films. Um, I, I spend a lot of time with my girlfriend, um, you know, a little bit of cooking. So, yeah, very, very low key. Very not, low key guy. Not a very interesting person outside of work. I don't know if I'm an interesting person at work, but I'm, I'm very, <laughs> uh, I tend to be very, uh, very low key. What was the last good movie you saw? Oh, the last good movie. I haven't seen a good movie in a long time. Okay, because uh, I just came off Twin Cities Film Festival, and oh, there were yeah. a ton. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I haven't gone to a film in a while. So Yeah, there were a ton. Yeah. All right, uh, what's your guilty pleasure to eat? Oh, uh, chips. <laughs> Corn chips. 
Can you make a good corn chip? Uh, I have made good corn chips, but you know, whole grain uh, out of uh, whole grain milling out of uh, Hope. Not hope. Uh, welcome, Minnesota. Those are good chips. Those are good chips, and those are one they're of they're called the whole grain milling. Yeah, I think they're too. Whole they're grain in a yellow package, yellow and blue. They have a yep. yellow corn and a blue corn uh, at a welcome, not hope, and they uh, they produce a great product. But I have to say, pretty much any corn chip, it's I you know thick, thin, salty, not salty. I'm I'll obsessed with chips too. Yeah. Um, if we go to a restaurant and they offer like to bring the second round of chips, my husband would never say anything, but he'll mm. give me the side eye like. Really? You're going to get... Because I can just inhale chips. Right. Me too. Yeah. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. That's yeah. one of my guilty pleasures too. Chips and popcorn. Popcorn at the film. Yeah. At the movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did eat a whole bucket, a giant bucket of popcorn the other day. And then I didn't eat, honestly, for like two days. I felt like I was exploding. Yeah. You get bloated. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, this is horrible. Why did I eat an entire bucket of popcorn? But I did. So, well, it's good to just kind of break it down with you and yeah, hear absolutely. what you're doing. You're, you're kind of an intimidating person. I don't know really? if anyone's ever told you that. No, no, not really. Yeah. Well, the staff I work with, I can be a little bit intimidating. At well, work, and but. you're just very serious, you know, and I think, I feel like you're kind of like a scientist as much as you are a food producer. Sure. Because baking is so exact. And, right. Um, so I was really glad to get the opportunity to sit and talk with you because I have been a fan of your products. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Do you think he would ever do a and Your girlfriend, Jill, set it right. up. And she was like, oh, yeah, you, he's totally. I was like, well, he's kind of, he makes me kind of nervous. She's like, no, he's, she's like, you just need to talk to him. You just need to spend time with him. Yeah, I think I come across as more serious than I am. Um, I, I, I don't take myself seriously. I take what I do seriously. Very. And, so. and it's scientific, right? right? You have to understand the long and short strands of gluten and all those things. So Right. There's a certain amount of science that goes with it, too. It isn't just like, hey, let's just... But, you know, when you think about, like, here I am making bread, like, sounds super scientific. At the same time, we've been making bread for thousands of years, right? Right. And exactly. in some ways, it's like the simplest thing in the world. Right. In a sense, we're all making the same bread. Uh, it's just a matter of we're tweaking it here and there um, and trying to do the best we can. So, you know, I think... Uh, I, we take it very seriously because it is a profession and it's a, and it's a business, but at the same time, we have we do have a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, and so. it is just bread. Well, thanks for talking with me today. Absolutely. Thank you.